0: Chapter 6 A Visit to Box 5. We left Monsieur Fermin Richard and Monsieur Armand Moncharmin at the moment when they were deciding to look into that little matter of Box 5. Leaving behind them the broad staircase which leads from the lobby outside the manager's office to the stage and its dependencies, they crossed the stage, went out by the subscriber's door, and entered the house through the first little passage on the left. Then they made their way through the front rows of stalls and looked at box five on the grand tier. They could not see it well, because it was half in darkness, and because great covers were flung over the red velvet of the ledges of all the boxes. They were almost alone in the huge, gloomy house, and a great silence surrounded them. It was the time when most of the stagehands go out for a drink. The staff had left the boards for the moment, leaving a scene half set. A few rays of light, a wan, sinister light, that seemed to have been stolen from an expiring luminary, fell through some opening or other upon an old tower that raised its pasteboard battlements on the stage. Everything in this deceptive light adopted a fantastic shape. In the orchestra stalls, the drugget covering them looked like an angry sea whose glaucous waves had been suddenly rendered stationary by a secret order from the storm phantom, who as everybody knows, is called Adamaster. Messieurs Montcharmin and Richard were the shipwrecked mariners amid this motionless turmoil of a calico sea. They made for the left boxes, ploughing their way like sailors who leave their ship and try to struggle to the shore. The eight great polished columns stood up in the dusk like so many huge piles, supporting the threatening, crumbling, big-bellied cliffs— whose layers were represented by the circular, parallel, waving lines of the balconies of the grand first and second tiers of boxes. At the top, right on top of the cliff, lost in Monsieur Lennepveur's copper ceiling, figures grinned and grimaced, laughed and jeered at Monsieur's Richard and Moncharmin's distress. And yet these figures were usually very serious. Their names were Isis, Amphitrite, Hebe, Pandora, Psyche, Thetis, Pomona, Daphne, Clisi, Galeti, and Arethusa. Yes, Arethusa herself, and Pandora, whom we all know by her box, looking down upon the two new managers of the opera, who ended by clutching at some piece of wreckage, and from there stared silently at box five on the grand tier. I have said that they were distressed. At least I presume so. Monsieur Montchamin, in any case, admits that he was impressed, to quote his own words in his memoirs. This moonshine about the opera-ghost in which, since we first took over duties of Monsieur Poligny and Debienne, we had been so nicely steeped Montchamin's style is not always irreproachable—had no doubt ended by blinding my imaginative and also my visual faculties. It may be that the exceptional surroundings in which we found ourselves in the midst of an incredible silence impressed us to an unusual extent. It may be that we were the sport of a kind of hallucination brought about by the semi-darkness of the theatre and the partial gloom that filled box five. At any rate, I saw, and Richard saw, a shape in the box. Richard said nothing, nor I either, but we spontaneously seized each other's hand We stood like that for some minutes, without moving, with our eyes fixed on the same point. But the figure had disappeared. Then we went out, and in the lobby communicated our impressions to each other, and talked about—the shape. The misfortune was that my shape was not in the least like Richard's. I had seen a thing like a death's head resting on the ledge of the box whereas Richard saw the shape of an old woman who looked like Madame Giry. We soon discovered that we had really been the victims of an illusion, whereupon, without further delay, and laughing like madmen, we ran to Box 5 on the Grand Tier, went inside, and found no shape of any kind. Box 5 is just like all the other Grand Tier boxes. There is nothing to distinguish it from any of the others.' Monsieur Montcharmin and Monsieur Richard, ostensibly highly amused, and laughing at each other, moved the furniture of the box, lifted the cloths and the chairs, and particularly examined the armchair in which the man's voice used to sit, but they saw that it was a respectable armchair with no magic about it. Altogether the box was the most ordinary box in the world, with its red hangings, its chairs, its carpet, And its ledge covered in red velvet. After feeling the carpet in the most serious manner possible, and discovering nothing more here or anywhere else, they went down to the corresponding box on the pit-tier below. In box five, on the pit-tier, which is just inside the first exit from the stalls on the left, they found nothing worth mentioning either. "'These people are all making fools of us!' Firmin Richard ended by exclaiming, It will be Faust on Saturday. Let us both see the performance from Box 5 on the Grand Tier. Chapter 7 Faust and What Followed On the Saturday morning, on reaching their office, the joint managers found a letter from O.G. worded in these terms. My dear managers, So, it is to be war between us? If you still care for peace, here is my ultimatum. It consists of the four following conditions. 1. You must give me back my private box and I wish it to be at my free disposal from henceforward. 2. The part of Margarita shall be sung this evening by Christine Daillet. Never mind about Carlotta. She will be ill. 3. I absolutely insist upon the good and loyal services of Madame Giry, my box-keeper, whom you will reinstate in her functions forthwith. 4. Let me know by a letter handed to Madame Giry, who will see that it reaches me, that you accept, as your predecessors did, the conditions in my memorandum book, relating to my monthly allowance. I will inform you later how you are to pay it to me. If you refuse, you will give Faust to-night in a house with a curse upon it. Take my advice, and be warned in time. O. G. Look here, I'm getting sick of him, sick of him! shouted Richard, bringing his fist down on his office table. Just then, Mercier, the acting manager, entered. Lachanel would like to see one of you gentlemen, he said. He says that his business is urgent, and he seems quite upset. Who is Lachanel? asked Richard. He's your stud groom. What do you mean, my stud groom? Uh, yes, sir, exclaimed Mercier. There are several grooms at the opera, and Monsieur Lachanel is at the head of them and what does this groom do he has the chief management of the stable what stable why yours sir the stable of the opera is there a stable at the opera upon my word i didn't know where is it in the cellars on the rotunda side it's a very important department we have 12 horses 12 horses and what for in heaven's name Why, we want trained horses for the processions in the Juive, the Propheta, and so on. Horses used to the boards. It is the groom's business to teach them. Monsieur Lachanel is very clever at it. He used to manage Franconi's stables. Very well. But what does he want? I don't know. I never saw him in such a state. He can come in. Monsieur Lachanel came in carrying a riding whip with which he struck his right boot in an irritable manner. "'Good morning, Monsieur Lachanel,' said Richard, somewhat impressed. "'To what do we owe the honour of your visit?' "'Monsieur Manager, I have come to ask you to get rid of the whole stable.' "'What? You want to get rid of our horses?' "'I'm not talking of the horses, but of the stablemen.' "'How many stablemen have you, Monsieur Lachanel?' Six stablemen.' That's at least two too many. These are places, Mercier interposed, created and forced upon us by the Under Secretary of the Fine Arts. They are filled by protégés of the government, and if I may venture to. I don't care a hang for the government, roared Richard. We don't need more than four stablemen for twelve horses. Eleven, said the head riding master, correcting him. Twelve, repeated Richard. Eleven, repeated Lachanel. "'Oh, the acting manager told me that you had twelve horses.' "'I did have twelve, but I have only eleven since César was stolen.' And M. Lachanel gave himself a great smack on the boot with his whip. "'Has César been stolen?' cried the acting manager. "'César, the white horse in the Profeta. "'There are not two Césars.' "'said the study groom dryly. "'I was ten years at Franconi's, "'and I have seen plenty of horses in my time. "'Well, there are not two Césars. "'And he's been stolen.' "'How?' "'I don't know. "'Nobody knows. "'That's why I've come to ask you to sack the whole stable.' "'What do your stablemen say?' "'All sorts of nonsense. "'Some of them accuse the supers.' Others pretend that it's the acting manager's doorkeeper. "'My doorkeeper? I'll answer for him as I would for myself,' protested Mercier. "'But after all, Monsieur Lachanel,' cried Richard, "'you must have some idea.' "'Yes, I have,' Monsieur Lachanel declared. "'I have an idea, and I'll tell you what it is. There's no doubt about it in my mind.' He walked up to the two managers and whispered, It's the ghost who did the trick. Richard gave a jump. What? You too? You too? How do you mean? I too. Isn't it natural after what I saw? What did you see? I saw as clearly as I now see you. A black shadow riding a white horse that was as like César as two peas. And did you run after them? I did. And I shouted, but they were too fast for me, and disappeared in the darkness of underground Gallery. Monsieur Richard rose. That will do, Monsieur Lachanel. You can go. We will lodge a complaint against the ghost. And sack my stable? Oh, of course. Good morning. Monsieur Lachanel bowed and withdrew. Richard foamed at the mouth. "'Settle that idiot's count at once, please.' "'He is a friend of the government representatives,' "'Mercier ventured to say. "'And he takes his vermouth at Tortonis with Lagrenne, "'Scholl and Pertuisi, the lion-hunter,' added Montcharmin. "'We shall have the old press against us. "'He'll tell the story of the ghost, "'and everybody will be laughing at our expense. "'We may as well be dead as ridiculous.' "'All right, say no more about it.' At the moment the door opened. It must have been deserted by its usual Cerberus, for Madame Giry entered without ceremony, holding a letter in her hand, and said hurriedly, "'I beg your pardon. Excuse me, gentlemen, but I had a letter this morning from the Opera Ghost. He told me to come to you, that you had something to—' She did not complete the sentence. She saw Firmin Richard's face, and it was a terrible sight.' he seemed ready to burst. He said nothing. He could not speak. But suddenly he acted. First, his left arm seized upon the quaint person of Madame Giry and made her describe so unexpected a semicircle that she uttered a despairing cry. Next, his right foot imprinted its sole on the black taffeta of a skirt which certainly had never before undergone a similar outrage in a similar place. The thing happened so quickly that Madame Giry, when in the passage, was still quite bewildered, and seemed not to understand. But suddenly she understood, and the opera rang with her indignant yells her violent protests and threats. About the same time, Carlotta, who had a small house of her own in the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré, rang for her maid, who brought her letters to her bed. Among them was an anonymous missive, written in red ink, in a hesitating, clumsy hand, which ran, "'If you appear tonight, you must be prepared for a great misfortune at the moment when you open your mouth to sing, A Misfortune Worse Than Death.' The letter took away Carlotta's appetite for breakfast. She pushed back her chocolate, sat up in bed, and thought hard. It was not the first letter of the kind which she had received, but she never had one couched in such threatening terms. She thought herself at that time the victim of a thousand jealous attempts, and went about saying that she had a secret enemy who had sworn to ruin her. She pretended that a wicked plot was being hatched against her, a cabal which would come to a head one of those days, but she added that she was not the woman to be intimidated. The truth is that if there was a cabal, it was led by Carlotta herself against poor Christine, who had no suspicion of it. Carlotta had never forgiven Christine for the triumph which she had achieved when taking her place at a moment's notice. When Carlotta heard of the astounding reception bestowed upon her understudy, she was at once cured of an incipient attack of bronchitis, and a bad fit of sulking against the management and lost the slightest inclination to shirk her duties. From that time she worked with all her might to smother her rival, enlisting the services of influential friends to persuade the managers not to give Christine an opportunity for a fresh triumph. Certain newspapers, which had begun to extol the talent of Christine, now interested themselves only in the fame of Carlotta. Lastly, in the theatre itself, the celebrated but heartless and soulless diva made the most scandalous remarks about Christine and tried to cause her endless minor unpleasantness. When Carlotta had finished thinking over the threat contained in the strange letter, she got up. "'We shall see,' she said, adding a few oaths in her native Spanish, with a very determined air. The first thing she saw when looking out of her window was a hearse, She was very superstitious, and the hearse and the letter convinced her that she was running the most serious dangers that evening. She collected all her supporters, told them that she was threatened at that evening's performance with a plot organised by Christine Daillet, and declared that they must play a trick upon that chit by filling the house with her, Carlotta's, admirers. She had no lack of them, had she? she relied upon them to hold themselves prepared for any eventuality and to silence the adversaries if as she feared they created a disturbance monsieur richard's private secretary called to ask after the diva's health and returned with the assurance that she was perfectly well and that were she dying she would sing the part of margarita that evening the secretary urged her in his chief's name to commit no imprudence to stay at home all day and to be careful of drafts, and Carlotta could not help, after he had gone, comparing this unusual and unexpected advice with the threats contained in the letter. It was five o'clock when the post brought a second anonymous letter in the same hand as the first. It was short, and said simply, "'You have a bad cold. If you are wise you will see that it is madness to try to sing tonight." Carlotta sneered, shrugged her handsome shoulders, and sang two or three notes to reassure herself. Her friends were faithful to their promise. They were all at the opera that night, but looked round in vain for the fierce conspirators whom they were instructed to suppress. The only unusual thing was the presence of Monsieur Richard and Monsieur Montcharmin in Box 5. Carlotta's friends thought that perhaps the managers had wind on their side of the proposed disturbance and that they had determined to be in the house so as to stop it then and there. But this was unjustifiable supposition, as the reader knows. Monsieur Richard and Monsieur Montcharmin were thinking of nothing but their ghost vain, in vain do I call through my vigil weary. On creation and its lord, never reply will break the silence dreary, no sign, no single word." The famous baritone, Carolus Fonta, had hardly finished Dr. Faust's first appeal to the powers of darkness, when M. Firmin-Richard, who was sitting in the ghost's own chair, the front chair on the right, leaned over to his partner and asked him chaffingly, "'Well—' "'Has the ghost whispered a word in your ear yet?' "'Wait, don't be in such a hurry,' replied Monsieur Armand Moncharmin in the same gay tone. "'The performance has only begun, and you know that the ghost does not usually come until the middle of the first act.' The first act passed without incident, which did not surprise Carlotta's friends, because Margarita does not sing in this act. As for the managers, they looked at each other when the curtain fell. "'That's one.' "'said Montcharmin. "'Yes, the ghost is late,' said Firmin Richard. "'It's not a bad house,' said Montcharmin, "'for a house with a curse on it.' Monsieur Richard smiled, and pointed to a fat, rather vulgar woman, dressed in black, sitting in a stall in the middle of the auditorium, with a man in a broadcloth frock-coat on either side of her. "'Who on earth are those?' asked Montcharmin. "'Those, my dear fellow, are my concierge,' Her husband and her brother. Did you give them their tickets? I did. My concierge had never been to the opera. This is the first time. And as she is now going to come every night, I wanted her to have a good seat, before spending her time showing other people to theirs. Moncharmin asked what he meant, and Richard answered that he had persuaded his concierge, in whom he had the greatest confidence, to come and take Madame Giry's place. Yes, he would like to see if, with that woman instead of the old lunatic, Box 5 would continue to astonish the natives. "'By the way,' said Montcharmin, "'you know that Mother Giry is going to lodge a complaint against you?' "'With whom?' "'The ghost?' "'The ghost.' Montcharmin had almost forgotten him." However, that mysterious person did nothing to bring himself to the memory of the managers, and they were just saying so to each other for the second time, when the door of the box suddenly opened to admit the startled stage manager. "'What's the matter?' they both asked, amazed at seeing him there at such a time. "'It seems there's a plot got up by Christine Daae's friends against Carlotta. Carlotta's furious!' "'What on earth!' said Richard, knitting his brows. But the curtain rose on the Kermis scene, and Richard made a sign to the stage manager to go away. When the two were alone again, Montcharmin leaned over to Richard. Then d'Ayer as friends? he asked. Yes, she has. Whom? Richard glanced across at a box on the grand tier containing no one but two men. "'The Comte de Chagny?' "'Yes. "'He spoke to me in her favor with such warmth "'that if I had not known him to be Sorelli's friend—' "'Really?' "'Really?' said Mon "'And who is that pale young man beside him?' "'That's his brother, the Viscount. "'He ought to be in his bed. "'He looks ill.' "'The stage rang with gay song.' "'Red or white liqueur, coarse or fine, what can it matter? So we have wine.'" Students, citizens, soldiers, girls, and matrons whirled light-heartedly before the inn with the figure of Bacchus for a sign. Siebel made her entrance. Christine Daillet looked charming in her boys' clothes, and Carlotta's partisans expected to hear her greeted with an ovation which would have enlightened them as to the intentions of her friends but nothing happened. On the other hand, when Margarita crossed the stage and sang the only two lines allotted her in this second act, No, my lord, not a lady am I, nor yet a beauty, and do not need an arm to help me on my way. Carlotta was received with enthusiastic applause. It was so unexpected and so uncalled for that those who knew nothing about the rumours looked at one another and asked what was happening and this act also was finished without incident. Then everybody said, "'Of course, it will be during the next act.' Some, who seemed to be better informed than the rest, declared that the row would begin with the ballad of the King of Tulle, and rushed to the subscribers' entrance to warn Carlotta. The managers left the box during the entract to find out more about the cabal of which the stage manager had spoken, but they soon returned to their seats, shrugging their shoulders and treating the whole affair as silly. The first thing they saw on entering the box was a box of English sweets on the little shelf of the ledge. Who would put it there? They asked the box-keepers, but none of them knew. Then they went back to the shelf, and next to the box of sweets found an opera-glass. They looked at each other. They had no inclination to laugh all that madame giry had told them returned to their memory and then and then they seemed to feel a curious sort of draft around them they sat down in silence the scene represented margarita's garden gentle flowers in the dew be message for me as she sang these first two lines with her bunch of roses and lilacs in her hand christine raising her head saw the vicomte de chany in his box and from that moment her voice seemed less sure, less crystal-clear than usual. Something seemed to deaden and dull her singing. "'What a queer girl she is,' said one of Carlotta's friends in the stalls, almost aloud. "'The other day she was divine, and to-night she's simply pleating. She has no experience, no training. "'Gentle flowers, lie ye there, and tell her from me.' The Viscount put his head under his hands and wept. The Count, behind him, viciously gnawed his moustache, shrugged his shoulders, and frowned. For him, usually so cold and correct to betray his inner feelings like that by outward signs, the Count must be very angry. He was. He had seen his brother return from a rapid and mysterious journey in an alarming state of health. The explanation that followed was unsatisfactory, and the Count asked Christine Daillet for an appointment. She had the audacity to reply that she could not see either him or his brother. "'Would she put Dane to hear me, and with one smile to cheer me?' The little baggage!' growled the Count. And he wondered what she wanted, what she was hoping for. She was a virtuous girl. She was said to have no friend, no protector of any sort. That angel from the north must be very artful." Raoul, behind the curtain of his hands that veiled his boyish tears, thought only of the letter which he received on his return to Paris, where Christine, fleeing from Perrault like a thief in the night, had arrived before him. "'My dear little playfellow, you must have the courage not to see me again, not to speak of me again. If you love me just a little, do this for me, for me, who will never forget you, my dear Raoul. My life depends upon it, your life depends upon it, your little Christine. Thunders of applause, Carlotta made her entrance. I wish I could but know who was he that addressed me, if he was noble or at least what his name is. When Margarita had finished singing the ballad of the King of Tulle, She was loudly cheered, and again, when she came to the end of the jewel song, Ah, the joy of past compare, these jewels bright to wear. Henceforth, certain of herself, certain of her friends in the house, certain of her voice and her success, fearing nothing, Carlotta flung herself into her part without restraint of modesty. She was no longer Margarita. She was Carmen. She was applauded all the more, and her debut with Faust seemed about to bring her a new success, when suddenly a terrible thing happened. Faust had knelt on one knee. Let me gaze on the form below me, while from yonder either blue. Look how the star of Eve, bright and tender, lingers o'er me to love thy beauty too. And Margarita replied, Oh, how strange like a spell does the evening bind me, and a deep languid charm I feel without alarm, with its melody enwind me and all my heart subdue." At that moment, at that identical moment, the terrible thing happened. Carlotta croaked like a toad. Quack! There was consternation on Carlotta's face and consternation on the faces of all the audience. The two managers in their box could not suppress an exclamation of horror. Everyone felt that the thing was not natural, and there was witchcraft behind it. That toad smelt of brimstone. Poor, wretched, despairing, crushed Carlotta. The uproar in the house was indescribable. If the thing had happened to anyone but Carlotta, she would have been hooted. But everybody knew how perfect an instrument her voice was, and there was no display of anger, but only of horror and dismay. The sort of dismay which men would have felt if they had witnessed the catastrophe that broke the arms of the Venus to Milo. And even then they would have seen and understood. But here that toad was incomprehensible, so much so that after some seconds spent in asking herself if she had really heard that note, that sound, that infernal noise issue from her throat, she tried to persuade herself that it was not so, that she was the victim of an illusion, an illusion of the ear, and not an act of treachery on the part of her voice. Meanwhile, in Box 5, Montcharmin and Richard had turned very pale. This extraordinary and inexplicable incident filled them with a dread which was the more mysterious inasmuch as for some little while they had fallen within the direct influence of the ghost. They had felt his breath. Montcharmin's hair stood on end. Richard wiped the perspiration from his forehead. Yes, the ghost was there, around them, behind them, beside them. They felt his presence without seeing him. They heard his breath, close close, close to them. They were sure that there were three people in the box. They trembled. They thought of running away. They dared not. They dared not make a movement or exchange a word that would have told the ghost that they knew that he was there. What was going to happen? This happened. Quack! Their joint exclamation of horror was heard all over the house. They felt that they were smarting under the ghost's attacks. Leaning over the ledge of their box, they stared at Carlotta as though they did not recognize her. "'That infernal girl must have given the signal for some catastrophe. Ah! They were waiting for the catastrophe. The ghost had told them it would come. The house had a curse upon it.' The two managers gasped and panted under the weight of the catastrophe. Richard's stifled voice was heard calling to Carlotta. "'Well, go on.' No, Carlotta did not go on. Bravely, heroically, she started afresh on the fatal line at the end of which the toad had appeared. An awful silence succeeded the uproar. Carlotta's voice alone once more filled the resounding house. "'I feel without alarm,' the audience also felt, but not without alarm. "'I feel without alarm. I feel without alarm.' Quack, with its melody and wind me, quack, and all my heart sub-quack. The toad had also started afresh. The house broke into a wild tumult. The two managers collapsed in their chairs and dared not even turn around. They had not the strength. The ghost was chuckling behind their backs. And at last they distinctly heard his voice in their right ears. The impossible voice. The mouthless voice saying, She is singing tonight to bring the chandelier down. With one accord, they raised their eyes to the ceiling and uttered a terrible cry. The chandelier, the immense mass of the chandelier, was slipping down, coming toward them, at the call of that fiendish voice. Released from its hook, it plunged from the ceiling and came smashing into the middle of the stalls, amid a thousand shouts of terror a wild rush for the doors followed. The papers of the day state that there were numbers wounded and one killed. The chandelier had crashed down upon the head of the wretched woman who had come to the opera for the first time in her life, the one whom Monsieur Richard had appointed to succeed Madame Giry, the ghost's boxkeeper, in her functions. She died on the spot, and the next morning a newspaper appeared with this heading. Two hundred kilos on the head of a concierge. That was her sole epitaph.